This is The Guardian. Hey, I'm Shantae Joseph. I'm a writer and broadcaster and I spend way too much time online. But now those years of scrolling are finally paying off because I'm hosting The Guardian's new pop culture podcast. In each episode, I'm going to get under the skin of the week's biggest stories. If you love pop culture and want to get into how it's shaping and impacting our lives, then you should join me every Thursday, launching on the 3rd of November. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. Bye. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, What if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week he has a candid conversation with guests, including Prime Ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine yourself in medieval times, somewhere from the 5th all the way up to the 15th century. You might be picturing muddy streets filled with rickety carts, dirty water chucked out of windows, people with bad teeth and sores on their skin, and the presence of a very nasty smell. But what was life really like? Researchers in Cambridge are finding out by excavating bones from an ancient burial site and using modern science to analyse them. So far, they've discovered some interesting and disgusting things. Bunions, parasites and broken bones that could kill. From The Guardian, I'm Madeline Finlay and this is a Spooky Science Weekly. Nicola Davis, you're The Guardian's science correspondent. When you told me that there was a team of researchers from the University of Cambridge digging up old bones, I think you knew I wouldn't be able to resist. It is such a cool project and I have covered it over the years with all these new finds that are coming out. And they've excavated three or four different burial areas around Cambridge. And what's really interesting and what the kind of key thing about this research is that these burial areas were used for different types of people. So 
the team can kind of compare all sorts of different things. So, you know, which kind of diseases affected who? And they can really sort of start to unpick some of those questions. And some of their findings are are actually quite counterintuitive. So, of course, you had to go and take a look. And you went off to Cambridge to meet Craig Sessford, an archaeologist who was excavating some of these sites. We're here in sunny Cambridge and it's hustling and bustling, lots of people going about their daily business. It's quite a big city now. Can you tell me what it would have been like, though, sort of in the medieval time? In medieval times, Cambridge was a well-established market town on the river involved in trade. So it was a lot smaller than it is today. The university doesn't develop until the 13th century onwards. But we're sitting in the historic core near one of the main streets and this would have been hustling and bustling and very busy then. On the opposite side, we now have St John's College. In the medieval period, that was the hospital of St John's. I see, OK. And, and we talk about a hospital. We think about hospitals now. And I suspect our view now is very different to what a hospital might have been like in medieval times. Was it about, you know, curing the sick and then sending them on their way? Or, or who would come and use it? What was going on in that kind of a place? So a medieval hospital is a very different kind of institution from a modern hospital. And mostly it's about as the name suggests, hospitality. It's about providing various forms of charitable care. So it took care of people who couldn't take care of themselves and probably didn't have a local family support network, principally a roof over people's heads and bed and board, almost. Now, you're an archaeologist, so you've been doing a lot of work on this site. Tell me, what is it exactly that you have been digging up here? What is it? What are the excavations that you've been doing? So the excavations took place because... St John's College, who owned the site, wanted to redevelop the area. And there's actually a Roman settlement here. So at the very sort of bottom of the archaeological sequence, we discovered pits and features related to that. Then we found the cemetery that was established by the hospital. And we found lots of dead people, skeletons associated with that. When the hospital becomes a college, they stop using it as a cemetery. So the cemetery is actually sort of in the middle of a sandwich of other periods of archaeology on the site. Nicola, a medieval cemetery, it's so interesting. So after they'd done the excavation, they did some analysis of the bones in a laboratory as well. What did they find out about the people who had been buried there? As Craig was saying, this isn't a hospital in the sense necessarily of kind of as we think of it today, where you go there and you're cured. And it, it was more about caring for the for the sick and the elderly and those who couldn't look after themselves. But you also had some people who paid to be buried there as well. It seems that you have sort of a mix of male and female, but you don't have a lot of young females. You have a lot of the poorer sector of society, maybe some from the middle echelons, but you don't have the sort of very wealthy. This isn't sort of like you know the most prestigious place to be buried. A lot of those who are buried there were being looked after by the hospital itself. And as you set out before, they were comparing this excavation site to a few others that they'd done as well. And this comparison is kind of what really teaches them about each of the sites. So yes, so among the other sites, there's a parish cemetery, and then there's the Augustinian friary. And they would have lived a different, quite different sort of life. And so because you can identify those individuals, and you can compare that with the general population, for example, in the parish cemetery, you can start to work out perhaps 
one of those groups had certain kinds of diseases more often or they had certain afflictions that might have been linked to their lifestyle. I know that Craig took you to that Augustinian friary, didn't he? Yes. Now, it doesn't look like a friary now. It was actually, we stood in front of a, a very modern building on a tarmac car park. So <laughs> you have to use your imagination when you go back to some of these sites. Have you found any particularly interesting discoveries when you've been doing these comparisons? We talked about earlier, it's, it's that kind of looking across different social strata that help you to understand a better picture of what was happening in medieval Cambridge. I'm wondering if there's any particular things that that comparison has thrown up. It has thrown up that the friars are actually a bit taller than all the other men from the town on average. There could be various reasons. It might just be that they're recruiting wealthier people, but it's also, if you joined as a novice at about 14, which was the standard age, then you're still going through sort of your male growth spurt. And if you're getting a much better diet, you could end up taller because how tall you grow is partly a combination of your genetics, but also your environment when you're growing up. One of the things I found most interesting is that in terms of sort of their body strength from things like their arms, they're actually very similar to everyone else in Cambridge so they're probably doing as much manual activity as everyone else. So even though you're in a friary one tends to think of that as being very bookish and very sort of devout and going to church all the time actually they'd have had some pretty tough work to be doing in order to sustain their life as well. I mean one of the things they did was wander around a lot preaching not just in Cambridge but in the villages around so they were probably walking as much if not more than other members of society. And so talk to me a bit about what you found when you studied these bodies. I seem to remember when I I reported on some of your findings a while ago that some of these uh, friars met quite nasty deaths. Yeah so there was one individual where you could just see that both his upper leg bones had been broken and shifted. Clearly you could see that this person had some kind of terrible accident. The two most likely scenarios are either that he was hit by something like a cart because these injuries are quite similar to modern traffic injuries or that he'd fallen onto a hard surface. It's almost certain that both the major arteries that go down the leg had been severed by this, so you'd, you'd bleed out in a matter of minutes. Gosh, sounds like a CAD file mystery, that. It's not very nice. So were there other possible nefarious deeds that had happened at the time or sort of dodgy deaths that you uncovered? When the friars started as orders, they were very popular, they were sort of the in thing. But very soon afterwards, within a few decades, there is a slight backlash against them from various people who think they're too wealthy or that they're taking too much away from local parish churches. And there is good evidence of violence and conflict with other groups in towns. So some person had been knocked on the head and another one had a broken arm that's very characteristic of a defensive injury and we do have evidence for example that one of the friar servants was murdered in 14th century Cambridge. So there was actually quite a lot of violence, or at least potential violence, that they found, you know, by looking at these bodies. And we don't know whether this was purposeful or accidental. Um, But aside from broken bones and arms, this work also took a much closer look at the bones as well and did a lot of analysis on them to find out more about the health of the people at the time. Yes, the health as well is really interesting. And so Craig dropped me off at the office of Dr. Piers Mitchell, who is a doctor, a biological anthropologist and an archaeologist. So we went into this this lovely uh, building, huge wooden door, very Cambridge. And we sat down at this table and in front of me was a sort of a layer of bubble wrap. 
and on top of that was a skull and at the top of the skull was a very nasty looking hole so that set the scene for me but what I actually wanted to ask Piers about first was the other end of the body because they'd been able to make some really interesting discoveries based on the toe bones found in some of these remains. If we look at bunions and hallux valgus, which is a condition where the big toe gets pushed sideways by pointy shoes, and that can lead to degenerative change in the big toe in a particular way that we can identify that the, the bunions were there. We found that the highest proportion of people in Cambridge who had the hallux valgus by a big degree was the Augustinian friars. So they were wearing these pointy shoes. And if we look at it over time, we can see in the 10th to 13th century, there was very little bunions and hallux valgus in Cambridge. And it all came in in the 14th and 15th century. It's exactly when the shape of shoes changed and it very directly matches the change that we're seeing in the archaeological bones of their feet. So they were quite sort of men about town almost, these fries. They were quite sort of fashion conscious. They weren't just sort of wearing the simplest thing that they That's could. That's true. And we also found when we looked at gout and how common that was in different groups. Now, from modern studies, we know that gout is caused by eating uh, purine-rich food, so lots of meats, uh, certain alcohol, especially beer, and also it can be triggered by fasting. And what we found is that gout was about 2 to 3% of the population in Cambridge, but in the Augustinian friars, it was 14%. Um, and you were also looking at the parasites as well. So you sort of looked at what goes in at the one end, but you also looked at what's come out the other end. So it's really a, a sort of full elementary survey here. So right. uh, talk me through about the parasites, because that, that did generate some quite surprising results, I think. Yes. So we were able to take soil from the pelvis of burials when they were excavated and that's where the intestines would have been during life and the eggs of any intestinal worms that were there when the person died and what we found is the kind of parasites were present were mainly there due to poor sanitation so we found the eggs of roundworm and whitworm that are spread by feces getting onto your food and drink what was particularly interesting is that the prevalence of so the proportion of the burials in the parish cemetery of all saints was about 32 percent of those individuals had intestinal parasite eggs in the samples but in the augustinian friars it was 58 percent and that seems surprising because we think of you know friars are better educated they've probably got better sanitary systems they've got better infrastructure you know they've got these quite nice buildings and sort of lavatory systems and so on and so forth. So you would presumably expect them to have better levels of, of sanitation, maybe less chance of having these parasites. That's right. Certainly the typical friary or monastery in medieval Britain, they would have had a latrine brock with multiple seats, normally made out of stone. And so you would expect that there would be better sanitation there than in the peasants who were living in town who might have had a cesspit or they might have had nothing and just gone to the toilet into a pot and then tossed that into the street in the morning. And so one possibility as to why the friars seem to have more commonly contracted parasites is if they were using the faeces from their own latrines or from other cesspits and other sources of faeces to fertilise uh, plants. You know, it could be that their well was just dug too close to their toilets and they were contaminating their own drinking supply. There are lots of potential options. Well, Nicola, this story did not disappoint. We've had 
severed major arteries, bunions and worms. And it's been a really interesting snapshot of medieval life across these different populations. What did you make of it all? I just found it fascinating. And it's partly the mundanity of some of these issues. It's the things like the intestinal worms. It's the fact that this brings to life real people's lives. These were the issues, the difficulties, the challenges that everyday people faced. And fundamentally, it helps us to understand what was happening across different strata of society. It's easy to bundle everybody at medieval times into one bucket, but actually different parts of society did have their own sort of nuances. They had their own things that were going on. And so It sheds light on both the universal issues that were faced, but also perhaps the more specific ones as well. Nicola, I have loved this story. So I'm so pleased that you told us about it. Thank you so much. Thanks so much. Love you to chat to you. Thanks again to Nicola Davis, Craig Sesford and Dr Piers Mitchell. You can find links to Nicola's coverage of this research on the podcast webpage at theguardian.com. Halloween might be on Monday, but there's something that could be even scarier on the horizon. The US midterm elections. Not to fear, The Guardian has you covered. The Politics Weekly America podcast is going on a road trip. Across five episodes, Johnny Friedland will be speaking to politicians, canvassers and voters from different states in the run-up to the midterms. And they're finishing on election night in Washington, D.C., It's kicking off on November the 2nd, so search for Politics Weekly America wherever you get your podcasts and click on that subscribe button now. And that's it for today. The producer was me, Madeline Finlay. The sound design was by Tony Onachuku. And the executive producer was Max Sanderson. We'll be back on Tuesday. See you then. This is The Guardian. Looking for your next great podcast? We live in unprecedented times. To make sense of it, what if you could learn from some of the most influential people on the planet? The podcast Tools and Weapons is hosted by Microsoft's Vice Chair and President Brad Smith. Every week, he has a candid conversation with guests, including prime ministers and Pulitzer Prize-winning journalists. The latest episode features Bayer CEO Bill Anderson. Though most of us know Bayer for pharmaceuticals, they're also focused on crop science. They're putting digital tools in the hands of farmers to get the most out of every acre. Listen to Tools and Weapons with Brad Smith wherever you get your podcasts.